0: Hello and welcome to
1: AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Good, spectacular, unsanctioned. How are you? (laughs) I I have been thinking for the last two hours that when I ask you how you are today, you are almost certainly going to respond unsanctioned. And I'm glad that you did. I'm glad that you did because Chelsea Football Club have, well, Roman Abramovich has been sanctioned today by the UK government, all his UK-based assets have been frozen. That includes Chelsea Football Club, that includes the holding company through which Roman was funneling money into Chelsea and building up substantial debt against the club. What are your immediate thoughts? What Did you, did you hear about this just before it broke? How did you find out?
2: I woke up marginally late because it's a day off. And I opened my phone to uh, an absolute hailstorm of messages. And that was fun reading for the first hour of being awake. Uh, Immediate thoughts. Surprised, to be perfectly honest. I didn't honestly think that um, this particular UK government would go through with such measures on such relatively short notice, I suppose. And certainly a lot of questions in terms of just Chelsea now, obviously. um, Leaving everything else to one side. Certainly a lot of questions as to where the actual lines will be drawn in terms of away fans buying tickets to go to Chelsea Games, in terms of um, obviously how it affects the club beyond this initial deadline which has been imposed. Obviously that is definitely going to have an impact on contract renewals, but Mm. to say at the moment that there's obviously a transfer ban when the current sanctions will, will expire before the transfer window actually opens is... Neither here nor there as it stands, but lots and lots of scope to change this as things develop, obviously.
1: Yeah, that's exactly the thing. It is very much up in the air at the moment. What it likely means in the short term is that Rudiger, Christians and Anaspi Laqueta will probably sign elsewhere. That may have been the case anyway, so that may not have an impact. But it might just give those players, if they were looking for one, a reason to sign elsewhere something something that they can stand behind and say well I was going to renew but then I couldn't um the bigger impact obviously like you said not allowed to sell merchandise not allowed to sell tickets so only season ticket holders and tickets that've already been sold not allowed to spend any more than 20,000 pounds on an away trip now I'm not a travel a travel expert I'll leave that to Adam But it seems to me that trying to get a staff and squad of around 35 people to Lille next week on a budget of 20 grand, when you take into account the international travel, coaches in the local area, and then obviously accommodation plus food, beverage, etc., is going to be quite difficult. I'm guessing Ryanair might be the only option. (laughs)
2: I did see a a Twitter thread earlier from... I can't remember who it was, I'm sorry, I'll have to have a look later on. Uh, But they they were detailing when they worked alongside a couple of teams, and I think that they said the average for an away domestic match was about £20,000 to take, like you said, not just the the playing staff with them, but all the coaches, all the support staff who have to travel, obviously all the equipment that they take with them, any provisions, etc. So around... Oh sorry, twenty thirty thousand, I think they said thirty thousand and the and the budget here is twenty thousand, isn't it? So definitely, there's gonna to have to be some sort of um, considerations some some changes, some um giving up some of the things that they would do in normal situations, whether there are certain people within the club who may be asked to not pay their way precisely, but Maybe defer some some sort of payment I'm sure there will be some legal angle where they can get around it or where they can reclassify an expense somewhere else I wouldn't expect that there would be too much of a actual problem in getting the team on the pitch maybe you know they, they'll only take one masseuse instead of two and you know certain mm. cutbacks like this um there will be ways around it they won't not play the games that's for sure but like you say it definitely may have to be the case that uh, they have to reduce let's say the amount of quality or luxury or expenditure that they have in terms of the actual physical travel
1: they may well just have to get a bus put the bus on a ship ship's ship's already been seized mate that was last week oh it's a thing of beauty it is a thing of beauty and obviously like you said a lot of it is speculation because we don't know what will happen in the even the medium term this is a short-term thing if everything in Ukraine was to halt next week, things could change. But at the moment, even things like a sale are blocked. Some people have suggested the government will allow a sale. There's been no official word on that that I've seen. It does seem to be more a hope than anything else. But like, who's going to want to buy Chelsea under this level of uncertainty when the company that has the debt over Chelsea has also been frozen, and therefore that debt can't be wiped. And if Abramovich doesn't get any money from the actual sale, which is another possibility, he may well start to kick up a fuss about that money that he's owed, which sums up to £1.5 billion, and could create more legal uh, headaches and hangover. So finding a buyer is going to be difficult, and I don't know your thoughts on this, but I, I thought it was... Very, very interesting. This from um Ed Thompson, who runs uh football com, Or actually it's that's not the website. It's just financial uk. He says the Chelsea holding company owes Roman Abramovich 1.5 billion. That's now frozen, and I don't believe he can write it off at this time, even if he wants to. So no one will buy the club with that hanging over it. The club is loss making for what it's worth, and which we know. It loses money every year. I expect the club to go into administration. He followed that up by pointing out that when Southampton and their holding company went into administration, the debt couldn't be wiped to the holding company and they ended up getting a points deduction. Do you think that's in any way likely or is this just something that shouldn't really be speculated on? And maybe we'll leave that to Mo and others.
2: Probably because. You know, different circumstances, to be honest, isn't it? This isn't a case of where some clubs, tik Derby for example, at the moment, where they've been deducted points this season, oh. has much more to do with the financial mismanagement over a period of time, not even with the current owners. So that's not necessarily a thing, you know, just because they they sell the club or not. It's still a historical thing, which is associated, associated with the club. But this isn't because of that. This is, you know, external political uh, reasons why the club have been sanctioned and stop having income and all that kind of thing. So I don't know whether that would be remotely along the same lines or whether the EFL guidelines and Premier League guidelines even uh, cover this eventuality, to be perfectly honest. I think that this is something which will drag on for a while. That looks pretty clear now. And um, it's not looking great, is it? I have to say that there's still... In terms of on the pitch, they're still in a perfectly good position in terms of they've reached one final, they should go ahead and qualify for the Champions League next season, and they obviously have two other trophies that they can still fight for at the moment. So we we shouldn't look at this in quite the same way as some teams who are abysmal off the pitch and equally bad on the pitch. This is still Mm. a very, very good team, but it's the longer-term future and how that structure of the team will be made up, which is currently under review.
1: Yeah, agreed. After this pod, I am doing Money Talks with Mo to get his ideas and thoughts on, on what's gone on. Uh, what I would That will be out this evening as well. What I would recommend is that after you finish listening to this one, go and listen to Mo's podcast, his most recent one with Matt Slater from The Athletic about Chelsea, and then have a listen to what me and Mo put together today. We'll park that there. This is going to run and run. We'll get more and more information as time goes by, like you said, it was basically just this big explosion of news today, and there's still an, an awful lot of uncertainty around what it will actually mean for the football club um We did have a question, and i I think this was from Nicole who asked this. I think Nicole asked this I, if I'm wrong, I apologize, I think it was Nicole. She wants to know, given the recent Announcement by FIFA and UEFA that Russian players, foreign players in Russia and potentially Ukraine, can are now allowed to act as if they're free agents and sign one of their clubs. Is there anyone that we would have interest in? Now, it's worth pointing out that at the moment they're only allowed act like free agents until the summer. Fifth Pro are pushing to have all those contracts torn up. That's not really a fair situation for anybody but you know just as a little exercise let's go through Russia you don't want to go through Ukraine I'll have a look at the Ukrainian teams and see if there's any players at any of these big Russian clubs or Ukrainian clubs that Liverpool could sign on a free this summer if they were allowed out of their contracts if this situation continues in the Ukraine beyond the summer months so where do you want to start in in Russia? Zenit Senate St. Petersburg. So their foreign players, Douglas Santos, Wilmer Barrios, Dejan Lovren, Wendell, Yuri Alberto, Malcolm, Claudinho, and Nurali Allop, who I believe is is a Kazakh. So I don't know if it will apply to him, because he's probably happy enough to stay. But of the others, who would you have interest in and why?
2: Would you prefer if I... Ended the podcast by suggesting James Milner starts again like I did last week, or if we begin the podcast by me saying we should
1: get Dejan Lovren back.
2: Which one would make you happier?
1: I will have you removed from the podcast, <laughs> and I will carry on by myself.
2: <laughs> nah, look, I, I think there are two very, very good players in the Zenit side um, who are, I think, first team capable for a lot of Premier League clubs and you know big clubs around Europe in particular. Uh, one is Claudinho, who I didn't actually yeah. know too much about before last year, but uh, a big part of the Brazil Olympic squad. Mm. Very, very capable player on the ball. I like his versatility as well. He can play as an eight, as a wide player, a support forward. Uh, I think he's a really good on the ball uh, technical type of player. Quite, quite slight. He's not He's not that big. Um, which maybe is a bit of an issue in terms of playing as an eight in some leagues with some teams, of course, but really, really good as an attacking outlet, moves the ball on really well between the lines, player that I like to watch very, very much. And the other one is far less subtle about his game, but that's Malcolm. Uh, He has already had a move to Barcelona, of course, that was his big move, and it Mm. went horribly, but I would say that that was right smack in the middle of peak abysmal Barcelona that he went and left. Uh, There was very, very little actual regeneration of the team, even though they they did bring in quite a lot of players at that point. Uh, he didn't really have too many chances to impress. I think now he's getting regular game time again. You can see many of the traits which made him quite an attractive player in the first place when he was coming out of South America. Uh, lots and lots of pace, really good on the ball, a good eye for goal, decent delivery from wide areas as well, and uh, loves to take a shot from absolutely anywhere.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's not afraid to, to let fly when needed. I do really like Claudinho. He's a, very much a late bloomer, didn't sort of make his big explosion onto anyone's consciousness until he joined Red Bull Bragatino uh, at 22. He was sort of drifting about, had a lot of loan spells before that, never really caught on anywhere. Joined them, did very, very well. Like you said, went to the Olympics, was very impressive. Obviously got his move to Zenith and has been genuinely outstanding for them this season. Um, right next up in the Russian league, we've got FC. Oh, sorry, we've got uh, S- CSK in Moscow. So you've got Bruno Fuchs, uh, Jorge Carascal, who's on loan. Chidra Ajuke. I'm not even going to try and pronounce that Kazaki chap's name. Um, you've got Magnuson. You have Jean Philippe Gabaman in on loan from from, <laughs> from Everton. Jesus Medina, uh, Yusuf Yazicki in on loan from Lille. I do like him. He was linked with us a few years ago. We've gone past the level where he would be useful. They do have a couple of players out on loan as well, uh, Emil Bohinen and Amur Sigurdsson among them. Is there anyone at CSK Moscow that would interest you?
2: The only one would be Yuziki. I think he's an interesting player. We've spoken about him a few times last year during... um, was it? Oh, it was during while they were going for the, the title, obviously, mm. and uh, a good good run in Europe as well at the time, but I I don't think that he's actually one who would be Liverpool level. I just think he's an interesting player, really. Um, probably one who could boost quite a lot of mid-table teams in the Premier League up to, you know, into the top sort of eight sort of region if he if he does get game time and you play him in a role because he's kind of an in-between player. He can play as an out-centre mid or he can play up front, and a lot of the time they used him as a second forward with, uh, I was a burak as they used him with last year, and I didn't honestly like that. I liked it much more when he was either just a central player or the focal point of the attack. I didn't always think he he had the maybe the, the link-up player, the awareness to really play that second striker role or, or a 10. Mm. Um, so I don't think he's one for Liverpool or indeed anybody else at that side. I don't know huge amounts about Jadario uh, Ducay, to be fair. He certainly has a few goals on that for them this season, but not one that I've seen huge volumes of.
1: Right, moving on then to Spartak, Moscow. You've got Samuel Gigot, the keeper. You've got uh, Max Cowfries, the right back. Ayrton Lucas, the left back from Brazil. Victor Moses, Jordan Larson. Christopher Martins, who's on loan from Young Boys. You've got uh, Shamar Nicholson, the Jamaican. Quincy Promes, And then out on loan, they currently have Jorrit Hendricks, Alex Kral, Gus Thiel, Ostan Uranoff, Ezekiel Ponce, and Pedro Rocha. Anyone there of interest to you?
2: Not to me, and potentially Quincy might need some sort of legal counsel before he makes any decision over his future.
1: Yeah, he's, an, he's got himself into quite a large spot of bother. So we'll move on to locomotive Moscow. You've got Pablo, the Brazilian centre-back. You've got uh, Shirano Gurk, the Dutch winger. Uh, Alex Becca, beka Alexis beka Becker, very interesting, defensive midfield player. Tim Yejev, who was at Bayer Leverkusen for a number of years. It didn't really work. Wilson Isidor, uh, Francois Kamano, Boris Rotenberg, Magic Rybus, and that is basically it. Anyone at Locomotive Moscow catching your eye? Nope, they're rubbish this year. <laughs> uh, moving on then. Uh, Krasnodar, you've got uh, Gregor Kozowiak, Polish midfielder, been around a long time. Uh, Martinovic, the Belarusian, given Belarusian's allegiances with Russia, I doubt he'd want to leave anyway. Edward Spertson, who's from Armenia, and then they've got Christian Romero, Yon Cordoba, who it used to be pretty good, uh, Vanderson, Kjell, Eric Botham, and Junior Alonso, all out on Oh, all currently under contract, but not playing. I wonder, is that part of the current situation of what's gone on there? But none of them are currently named in the squad.
2: Um, the only one I think is actually halfway decent is Victor klausen but he's workmanlike, I think, is the best way to put it. He's not of Liverpool standard quality.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I don't think there's anyone there that you'd really that you'd really be going out of your way to try and to try and bring in it's a very, very average squad for Krosnador. Uh, Ruben Kazan, uh, you've got Montessar Talbi, uh, Silve Bekic, Felipe Urumovic, uh, Hwang In Bom, Andreas Dre Anders Dreyer, the uh, the Danish winger, the Georgian winger, whose name I won't try and pronounce for fear of getting my tongue tied in a knot, but who's very, very good. And very, very exciting. Uh, Oliver Albigard, who I don't know, and Saik Haxbanovich, who's just not very good. Anyone at Ruben Kazan that would interest you? I, I quite like that winger. If I could pronounce his name, I would say it in a quite an excited way, but he's he's very, very exciting on the ball.
2: Hey, we'll, we'll take him They Just have nothing written on the back of his jersey.
1: Well, his, yeah, his name's far too long to be put on the back of a jersey anyway. Um, Varac Glechia? I don't know who, who knows, who knows, <laughs> someone knows, That's just not me. Uh, he's but he is very good, he's been linked with Spurs in the past. Is there anyone else there that would interest you?
2: No, I think the only other team really that I'd be looking at is Dinamo, to be honest. Um, the rest of them, I mean, even like Sochi having a really good year, but anyone there that I'd really take, probably not. They're having a good uh, year. We've got a couple of players who have done well over a period of time in Europe or, or back in South America. But really, would I take them at Liverpool? No.
1: Yeah, Dina Momosco were were next for me. They've got Guillermo Varela, uh, Fabian Balbuena, who's a decent centre-back. Clinton NG, who I believe was is former Spurs. Uh, Nicola Moro, who's a decent player. And the Polish player, Sebastian Sebastian Simenski, who is very, very talented but has never really kicked on and become the player he was expected to be when he was sort of 17, 18, breaking into the Legia Warsaw team. Um, He's done fairly well with Moscow. He's having a really good season this year with Dinamo. Uh, Diego Laxalta is also there. He's just a journeyman who's been around and around and around for a long time. But uh, no, there's not anyone there. Uh to look quickly at Dinamo Kiev, uh Benjamin Verbich, Carlos De Pena, and Vitinho are the only ones of note. is an interesting enough player, but I'm not sure uh if he's of the level required. Schachter have a lot of Brazilians. I I do very much like Dodo, the young right back. Now he's very, very small. He's only five foot five, so we know that Klopp likes them a bit taller than that. You've got Vitao, the centre-back, who's very front-footed, very aggressive and one to keep an eye on. Marlon is there. You've got Mykon, Marcus Antonio would be another one worth considering. David Neres, Tete, uh, Manor Solomon, the Israeli. Fernando, who seems to have been around for an awfully long time, but is still only 23 somehow. Uh, Alan Patrick, Lasana Traore, Ismaela, and Pedrinho. Pedrinho is another interesting one. So I would say Pedrinho, Neres, Antonio, and Dodo would be of interest. But as you said before we went on, it would be a little bit mean to go in and start stealing players from a club. And and this club in particular have been affected more than any, any other club because, This whole thing began back in 2014 in the Donbass region. And Shakhtar, having just built a spectacular new stadium, were forced to abandon that stadium and basically become footballing nomads for the last couple of years, uh, playing in three different stadiums. They're now playing in Kiev. But it would be a little bit much to go in and then start stealing their players after all of that, especially when their stadium, which was shiny and new when they left it in 2014 now has big holes in it from shelling across the last eight years so um yeah it, it might be a little bit mean to to go in and t- take their players
2: yeah not for me i mean that look the the players may well want to leave and that's fine that's that side of it but i don't think that allowing them to unilaterally leave the clubs without any kind of recompense for for Shakhtar or the other clubs
1: is necessarily the right way to go here. Very, very different than My My assumption is for for all clubs, including the Russians, is that if the players are let out of their contracts and sign elsewhere, we'll see situations similar to what happened with Sporting Lisbon, where a number of their players declared themselves as free agents, including Raphael Leao and Rui Patricio, left, signed for other clubs. And then Sporting went to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, won their case and Lille for Léo, Wolves for Patricio had to pay substantial figures to Sporting. I assume that's what would happen here, that eventually Shakhtar or Zenith or whoever would go to the Court of Arbitration for Sport and say, well, hang on, we didn't do this. This war is not our fault. You made the, the FIFA and UEFA made the decision that these players could become free agents. We did not. We had a lot of money invested in these players. For example, Shakhtar only signed David Neres two months ago for like €15 million. Euro. We need that money back. We cannot function without that money. You've taken away our assets. We want to be compensated. So if you were to sign any of the players from any of these clubs in Ukraine or Russia, I assume eventually you would have to pay some sort of transfer fee for them. Seems likely, not too dissimilar, obviously, to the um,
2: situation of where we sign younger players domestically when they're out of contract and it has to go to a tribunal. This would be something that goes on for a long, long time, you would imagine, and no
1: particular end in sight as it stands. Exactly. So, you know, again, like with the Chelsea stuff, it's very much... A wait and see type of approach but as i say i do think you know you might get them for free to begin with there's going to be a fee to be paid at some point uh we'll move on to the purpose of today which is to discuss liverpool versus brighton and hove albion on the weekend this game is obviously in brighton at anfield earlier in the season the two sides drew 2-2 liverpool went one up on four minutes through jordan henderson and then Sadio Mane made it 2 on 24 with a diving header from an Alex Oxley, chamberlain cross, if memory serves. Brighton fought back. Mwepu scored a long ranger on 41. And then Leandro Trossard equalised on 65. Very much two points down the drain for Liverpool. But Brighton did fight back impressively. Brighton come into this game having lost their last four. Now, this is a team that went from the 19th of September when they beat Leicester all the way through to the 26th of December when they beat Brentford without winning a game. So three months and a week without winning a game. They won three of their next seven and have now lost four in a row. 2-0 to Manchester United, 3-0 at home to Burnley, which is a shocker, 2-0 at home to Villa, in which they were very much the masters of their own demise and then a 2-1 away to Newcastle, where, again, they did absolutely nothing to help themselves. They are not playing well, but over the course of the season, they're sitting 13th. They've been in the top half for most of the season, only dropping out this past weekend. They've been out, I think, for three weeks prior to that, in the middle of the year, towards the end of that long run without a victory. They have been as high as 4th, in weeks two, five, and and eight, what do you make of Brighton on the whole this season? Are you a little bit surprised by this recent downturn in form, or was it to be expected considering that run of three months without a win?
2: I think they are now, after Hodgson has left, the streakiest team in the Premier League. It is pretty much all or nothing for like big chunks at a time for them, isn't it? Crystal Palace used to be like this, but worse—like worse playing, worse watching, and worse results. It was. Three months without a win, and then it was five, six games, something like that, where they wouldn't lose, and then it would be they'd be safe again for another season. So they go on another three month run with a win, maybe one game, one nil, or something like that. Well, Brighton are doing that this year. It's 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 kind of to be expected, I suppose, just because of maybe how their fixtures have fallen to an extent, but then. You want I always I always get left wanting more from Brighton. They look really good, and I think the, the set-up, the way that they uh, line up for a lot of matches, their off-the-ball work is very, very good, but they just lack a little bit in both boxes sometimes, and it does leave them exposed to these runs, like you've just said. I mean, it's not just the four games in a row that they've lost. It's one win in nine. That stretches quite a long time, and if it's only Watford who are in the bottom three that you've beaten in that time, it it feels a lot more than that as well. Um, I don't know, I'm don't i not comparing there's a comment just gone in the uh, chat there I'm not comparing Graham Potter to Roy Hodgson in terms of management style or anything at all like that, I think he's a far far better coach but in terms of the results that they get they're really really streaky, it is very very good and they look like they're going to be progressive and maybe get into the top 9, 8 something like that and then all of a sudden you go months and months without a victory and a lot of the time it looks still like it's just down to not having that finisher that we've spoken about for about two years now Mm. uh, that they really need to bring in. They need to upgrade in that particular position. But some of the time it's not. I mean, like, you know, they scored, I don't know, say in the the cup game against Leicester, they scored a couple of goals there away from home. They played pretty well, but they still conceded twice to them. They drew 2-2 at Liverpool. So it's not just about not scoring any goals at all, and that's what costs them results. It is just this thing where they go on a run of games and and they cannot win and they cannot win and they cannot win. And then when they do, then they suddenly look really good again. It's like they, they get very, very affected by sudden upturns or downturns in, in confidence, in mood, in the squad. And that plays on for quite a while in terms of the upcoming results after
1: that. Yeah, I, I do agree. I think, obviously, look, there's, when it, with a club like Brighton, they can afford to build a very strong first eleven, And I think when Brighton have everybody fit, you can make a case that they do have a strong first 11, but it's still a first 11 with some holes in it. Like, I'm not a big fan of Robert Sanchez, the goalkeeper. I think he's decent, but he's not what I would classify as a top half goalkeeper. They've got Lamptey and Cuccarella, who I think are both better as wing backs than full backs, which dictates they have to play a back three. And unfortunately for them, I would say only Duncan Webster are good enough to start regularly in the Premier League. I think Veltman has fallen off. Duffy is a championship level player. They obviously sold Dan Byrne. So they're a little bit, they're, they're one shy there as well. So they've got not the ideal goalkeeper and they're not ideal in their back three. In midfield, I think they're loaded when you look at Basuma, Mwepu, Uh I really like Motor. I think he's a very, very good player. And then they've got the likes of McAllister, Frossard, and Mopey who are sort of attacking midfielder slash second striker, and Trossard is, you know, can play wide as well. But they don't have that goal score. So you know even their best 11, I would still say there's three holes in it. Now, you can say the goalkeeper one is okay, and that's fair enough. But then it's still two. It's still a centre-back and a striker. And when you look at them this season, they've only scored more than two goals in one game. They put three past Everton. They beat Everton 3 2 at Goodison. They've only scored two. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10 times, and three of them came in the cups. Sorry, eleven times, and four of them came in the cups. So only seven Premier League games out of the 28 they've played, in which they've scored two goals only scored three once, and when you do that, you really do have to be flawless defensively to win your games. You're only going to score one in the majority of games. Defensively, they've been pretty good this season. They've only conceded 32, and prior to this recent run, it was looking a lot better. They've conceded nine in their last four, so it was 23 through the first uh, whatever amount of games it was, 25 games or whatever, 24 games. Which is, which is pretty good. Uh, in fact, it's, it's very good. But when you don't score enough goals, you're dictating that you have to keep a clean sheet. And they have seven 1-1 draws this season. Games, oftentimes, that they should have won. You know, they've got a couple of 0-0 draws there that they should have won. They should have beaten Arsenal. They should have beaten Norwich. But because they couldn't generate a goal... They couldn't win those games. The 1-1 at home to Newcastle, the 0-0 at home to Leeds, they're disappointing results, especially on the balance of play. I thought they outplayed Chelsea when they played them as well, but couldn't get that second goal. So they are restricted by, you know, the limits on their spending, the limits on their ability to be a draw for players. We know they tried to get Darwin Nunes. They went all in on him. His head got turned by Benfica, and then there was no contest. They went in for Nico Gonzalez, which was a bit of a strange one because he's not a number nine. He's more in the Trossard-Mope sort of mix. A better player, I think, than either. But again, Fiorentina came in, and Fiorentina aren't, you know, one of the big seven in Italian football, but they're more of a draw than Brighton. So they're a little bit hamstrung. They've got the hands a little bit tied up just by who they are, what their history has been, and the inability to go, right, they want you, we want you as well. We'll give you bigger wages. Here's an extra 10 grand a week because they operate very cleverly. Like They they do run the club very, very well. Tony Bloom is one of the better owners in football. Now he's gone now, but they obviously had an an outstanding director of football as well and Dan Ashworth. Potter is a very level-headed individual, cares a lot about the club and the long-term viability of the club. So they're not going to do anything risky or anything stupid. Those days are over. They let Chris Hughton spend a little bit recklessly on some players that weren't good enough. Those days are over and now they are struggling to get in maybe that that number 9 that gets you 15 to 18 Premier League goals. Get that center back in who can give you what you need with Dunk and and Webster. like They, they looked at Max Kilman in the summer, and from what I read, Wolves were willing to, to do business on about 15 million, and Brighton couldn't pull it off. Now, Max Kilman and Webster, either side of Dunk, would have been a really good back three when you see what Kilman's done this year and how good Webster is. But they just couldn't afford to go and get that player when they were already bringing in Mwepu and Kukurellat.
2: Yeah, there's always going to be uh, some amounts of limits as to what a club like this size can do. And obviously they have to pick and choose at times where they think the biggest benefit is. And it isn't always possible that they can plug all the gaps in one year. And you can understand to an extent why they make decisions like, for example, selling Dan Byrne. Even though he was playing quite a big role in the team across the last couple of years... They weren't going to get a better offer like that for him. They weren't going to have another moment where they could get a really good return on a player who, although was playing a good role, wasn't going to take them any further than he already had, for example. He wasn't going to be the one who helped them get into the top six or into the top eight or anything like that. And it is a little bit caught between where they've come from and where they want to get to at times. And Mm. you you can definitely argue that, you know, coming even if it was 10th, 12th, something like that, two years in a row... That's progress, because you can do it once, but if you can do it consistently, that's got to be better. yeah, so it's something that definitely takes a little bit of time. And, like you said, losing um Dan Ashworth this year is going to be quite a big thing for them. That's that's a really key appointment that they have to replace now. I've not really seen too much about who that's going to be so far because he's only on Garden and leave until the end of the season. So, whether we don't know until then or they've already had discussions beforehand, we probably won't find out until the summer, to be perfectly honest. But it's definitely a club which is well built now, I'd say. There's really, really good foundations there to be able to keep doing what they're doing. And obviously, one or two transfers going exceptionally well is sometimes all you need to take that boost. Like has already happened, to be fair. Like mm. they wouldn't be, even though they're, you know, they're. Hit and miss this season sometimes, and you know the the form can waver quite wildly. But they are still thirteenth, which is nowhere near the relegation fight, neither in terms of positions nor in terms of points. And it's not too many seasons removed from where they were constantly either battling or in the relegation zone or anything like that. Then they're not this year. They've just gone on a four match losing streak, and they're still well over what is it twelve points? They are outside the relegation zone still. So that is quite considerable improvement from them. Yeah, and signing people like. Tarek Lamptey and uh, probably even Trossard. To be fair, Kukulela, These ones are the ones that are going to make the difference for them across the period of three, four years, either with performance levels or greater fees being brought in when they do move on.
1: Exactly, like they're leveling points with Leicester, with Villa, both of whom have spent huge amounts of money, both of whom had much higher expectations than Brighton coming in, coming into the season, leveling points with Palace who I think everybody has admired this season. And, you know, the Vieira revolution there is going very well. So, you know, even with Newcastle's great run of late, Brighton are still five points clear of them. Admittedly, Newcastle have a game in hand, but behind them then is Brentford, who are six points behind Brighton, and Brighton have a game in hand on Brentford. You go below that, they've played the same amount of games as Leeds and are 10 points clear. So, as you said, nowhere close to the relegation battle You refer the two points then back to Burnley. So, you know, it it is really admirable what they've done. And the the great thing about them is how they've done it, how they've gone about this, especially under Potter with the way that they've played. Graham Potter has revolutionized the way they play. And unfortunately for him, he's just sort of, he's coming at a time where they're trying to rectify mistakes of the past. So, you look at this year, players, this season, players that left the club in the summer. Davy Proper, I think they paid 13 million for him when they brought him in, sold him to PSG in the summer at a big loss, and now he's retired. Um, Bernardo brought in from one of the Red Bull teams for 9, 10 million, left at a big loss this summer. Uh, Johan Bakash. Brought in for fifteen or sixteen million from from I want to say Azel Alkmaar. I could be wrong. I think it was AZ Alkmaar. Uh, left for Feyenoord at a big loss. And Jurgen Lacadia brought in for big money. Never worked out for them. Left at a big loss. He'd been on loan a couple of times. So there's the better part of fifty million of investment that just didn't work out for them. And unfortunately for Potter they're not bringing in fees that are really going to move the needle for him. They're just trying to cut the wage bill and get rid of these players. They probably had to pay most of them to go away because you wouldn't imagine PSV, Red Bull, Salzburg, uh, Feyenoord and Bochum will be paying the same wages as Brighton were. So they'll have had to give golden handshakes to those players. So it is just a little bit unfortunate. Even with the the money coming in from Ben White, that was spent on the players they brought in. Uh, Sarmiento in, Mwepu in for a decent chunk of money, Cucurella in for a decent chunk of money, Abdoulasima in for, a, I think it was $8 million they paid for him. They went in January, brought in Kozlowski for 8 10 million. He's gone on loan again. Very talented, but this is kind of the market they're trying to shop in. The likes of him, the likes of uh, Felipe Cosedo, Moder, the other Polish kid they brought in with motor ones for the future that are you know six to eight million pound signings where they'll develop them for two years and then try and get them into the first team motors ahead of schedule but you know, that's sort of where they're limited to spending at the moment and unfortunately that does just limit how quickly you can progress up the table
2: definitely so and and again i think that that's okay this isn't a club which is in a hurry to achieve something it's not you know a club which has been bought out with the express need of getting into the champions league to become wildly profitable or anything like that this is you know a fairly diligent and conscientious approach to to building the club and you know staying very very much in terms of uh, how brighton has always been a part of the community as well which i think is a big part of why they are still able to you know, do things like the new stadium and attract uh, a full house every week, that sort of thing, it is still very, very inclusive and in making sure that it's in keeping what has come before, even though it's not the same owners. Um, so I think that, that all of that stuff is, is really important as a club, uh, that they do carry on, even in terms of transfers and on the pitch, be doing things in that similar sort of right way as they see it.
1: Agreed, agreed. I, I, I'd love to see them go and get... That striker that they need. I think it, it could be the difference for them. But again, I mean, you're talking about a ceiling really of probably outside the European places. And if you finish eighth or 13th, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's obviously a couple of million a year in the difference. But you're still in that sort of middle ground in the Premier League. You're still competitive in that same group. As long as you're not dropping out of that group, I think Brighton will be happy enough. And, you know, they'll likely make a couple of big sales again this summer. Uh, There's been talk of Lamptey and a lot of clubs interested. Now, that hamstring of his would terrify me. But Yves Basuma is one, I think, that will move on this summer. Adam Webster, it wouldn't be surprised if if he got some looks from clubs with a bit of money to spend, uh, because I think he's he's really, really good. Um, And, and, you know, maybe there's one or two others that will catch the eye. Maybe somebody will decide to go in on Trossard. Maybe Mopey has some, some fanciers out there. But the important thing for Brighton will just be to maintain the level that they've achieved and replace those players with players who can contribute as much. Uh, not always an easy thing, especially for someone like Basuma, who's one of the better players in the league in his position. But, you know, this is the model they've committed to. And as you said, a big part of it is they, they want to stay very close to the roots. It is a great club. Uh, there is an incredible community feel to it. The stadium is is a joy, a genuine joy. Uh, for those that haven't visited, I would recommend highly going to the Farmer Stadium um, as opposed to the absolute dung heaps they played at before that. This is a, a genuine marvel in the area. And it's a club that is very, very important to the, the local community. It is a source of pride that they have a Premier League club. I had a season ticket at Brighton about 12 years ago because I lived in the area and it was just the closest club to me. And again, the stadium was was dreadful. The club wasn't very good. The football wasn't ideal. But when they moved into this stadium then, just before I left England, you could see an enormous swell in pride. Among the locals. and Even as the stadium was being built. You could go to the stadium as it was being built. Any day. And there would be a couple of dozen people. Floating around. Having a look. Full of the joys of look what our club is getting. Because if you don't know the history of Brighton. They've been through some really tough years. Some really really tough years. And this is the payoff for it. And I couldn't be happier for everybody involved. And... um I really do think it's, it's warranted that they get the praise they deserve. Now, coming into this game, they have a couple of injury issues. Webster is still out. Sarmiento's back in training after surgery, but I don't think they're expecting to have him for this game. And Enoch Mwepu is back in training, but they're trying to be as careful as possible with him because he's had a couple of setbacks. And this latest injury, it's a tie problem. Has gone on for a lot longer than they hoped, so he might be one that starts this game on the bench. Webster's a big blow for them, though. Carl, how do they overcome that? Is it Duffy and Veltman in a back three? Do they go back four? Do you think?
2: Well, they have been a back four for quite a while now. Um, you know, it, it's worked okay for them, I think, up until the last few results, obviously, but before that, they were still playing a back four and getting um Lampty quite high up the pitch. More so than obviously when he's a wing back and has to be doing the tracking back as well. And with you, I think he's a great outlet as a a wing back. And sometimes it's not about your starting position, but having that space to break into when you're a player who's that explosive and that good at carrying the ball and so on. So it's not a hundred percent different because obviously if you play Veltman as your right back and Lamptey ahead of you, you just tilt anyway. Especially if the ball's over the other side of the pitch or your defensive work is is uh, balanced that way, and you become mm. a three in the centre. So it's not. The be all and end all that you know. They start one way or they start the other. There's plenty of flexibility there because of the way that Potter often asks many players in his squad, not just not just Veltman or anyone, to to cover multiple roles. Like Jacob mm. Modra, who's been playing as a ten, he's played as a uh, a proper pivot midfielder for them. He's been a wing back for them. So there's a load of flexibility into how they can go on and off the ball. They were more or less in a diamond shape for quite a lot of the Newcastle match as well. Um, yeah, I, I think that they'll stick with the back four at the minute. But, like I say, I, I would expect that that is a little bit more conservative at times if they're under sustained pressure and you could easily see uh, Lampty drop right back into uh, a back five, pretty much, and, and Veltman just tucks in as well.
1: Yeah, and then you've got Sully March sort of playing on the toes of Cucurella in front of him when needed as well and giving them sort of good cover on both sides. Uh, as you said, like they have been playing that back four, but. In possession, it does flip very much to a, a back three if Veltman is the right back. And in the games that Cooker that Cucurella and Lampty were the full backs, they were quite interesting to watch because they were a lot more aggressive now. You had Motor and McAllister sort of starting in the wider positions but coming really narrow and the midfield almost becoming a box with was Duffy and Veltman against. Burnley, so maybe not the best example, but those two holding Lalana and Basuma playing as a pivot in front of them with McAllister and Motor in front of them, and just that the channels absolutely opened up for Lampty and Cuccarella to provide the width. And it was, they were quite fun to watch. Now, the problem they had was that Burnley just bullied them, physically bullied them, picked out areas of space behind the fullbacks for McNeil and Lennon to run into, for Max Cornet to drop wide into. And then obviously Veghorse just provides such a unique challenge to any centre-back because he's 6'6", he's really strong, great in the air, but he can bring the ball into himself and lay it off, that the, the two Burnley centre-backs couldn't get anywhere close to him. Um, so assuming they go back four in this one, We'd be looking at Sanchez in goal, Veltman right back, Duffy and Dunk as the centre backs, Cucurella left back. They've got everybody fit in midfield, bar maybe Mwepu. Um, what are you expecting in midfield? Do you think he goes Basuma and Motor, maybe as his double pivot, or does he bring Lalana back in to start in this one, or does he stick with Alzati, who I thought had a bit of a stinker last time out?
2: Yeah, Halzati wasn't that good against Newcastle for sure. Uh, I I feel like maybe that was because of the the shape that they were trying to play there and wanted someone to just be sitting and still have that energy on both sides of him. But whether he would play in a double pivot, I I have my doubts, to be perfectly honest. I don't think he's the, the first port, port to call if they are going to play a, a flatter pair. Um, Bissouma and Modo, I would say, are definite starters at the minute. Yeah. And... It then depends. I mean, the thing about Brighton is you don't often get games where all three of their main goal scorers would start together, Trossab, Mopé, and probably McAllister. Mm. I know Welbeck has obviously got a few goals as well this season, but he's not a a guaranteed starter, and he's usually injured anyway. So there's not that many games where all three of those would start. I wouldn't be that surprised if this was one of those games, though. Um, Because of how McAllister plays, if they do play, let's say, a four... More or less two three one. I think he's maybe one of the better bets to to link play there through the centre. Solly March obviously outside him would still give an awful lot of work rate and balance and tracking back and all the rest of it from from the left hand side of the pitch. Um, but it is a little bit hit and miss at the minute because of the form guide is the, is the the real big thing where you're you're looking at. Brighton and saying are you going to just keep playing through it and just get through the season and see who does well or are you going to you know try and push on towards that top half and if so is it going to be personnel changes are we going to see them playing out and out diamond again but Lamptey goes to right back and looking to overlap all the time is it going to be Danny Welbeck and more pay up front is Lalana going to play there's lots and lots of possibilities because they do have squad numbers I just don't think mm. that they have anybody who's you know, an absolute standout in in one or two of the key areas that they really could do with that difference maker. I don't see a huge amount of difference, for example, between if they started with Trossard or McAllister as a left sider in a four, two, three, one. You know, they they give you a little bit different things, but in terms of overall quality, is one miles better than the other one? Probably not.
1: No, I think they're both very, very similar in their level. Um he also Potter likes to play Pascal Grouse he likes to have him in there for you know whatever reason it is it's certainly not his on field production he does like to have Adam Lalana on the pitch as much as possible again it, it can't have much to do with his performances because he he hasn't been very good for them but you know he, he likes to have one of those experienced heads in there with Basuma and motor and whoever else so if it is a diamond I mean maybe it's Basuma deepest motor as the most advanced one with Gross or Lalana and Sully March flanking it. And that puts um, Lamptey at right back. And then up front, he goes maybe Mopay and Trossard Maybe he goes Mopay and Welbeck or Trossard and Welbeck. They do have numbers. Like there's, there's no doubt they've got numbers in the squad. It's just that there's a number of players that you'd look at and think, this is a bit above your level. This is a bit of a stretch for you now at this point in your career to playing Premier League football. I think Solly March is one of them. Shane Duffy is definitely one of them. Uh, Lalana is one of them, and Danny Welbeck is one of them. They can do a job for you here and there, but when you play them too often, which has been the case with the likes of Lalana and Duffy in particular this season, they do tend to get exposed. And it is a little bit like playing with, you know, nine and a half men. Um but yeah, I mean it's it's probably foolish to, to try and predict what he'll do in midfield. He could throw out a four-three three, he's done it this season, and maybe go with Lamptey as the the right winger in the three, with Lamptey and Trasard either side of Mopay, put Grafters in midfield and try and work as hard as possible up against our three. But You just don't know with Potter It, it It is one of the things I think that does make him a good coach is that he can be a little bit unpredictable. He's not afraid to try new things. He's not afraid to go with an attacking lineup when you expect maybe a bit more of a conservative lineup. And at the flip side, sometimes he can make the mistake of being a little bit too conservative when you think the game is maybe there for the taking. Which I hope it is
2: this weekend, but we'll need to sharpen up on our side
1: for that. Yeah, we will. We will indeed. Um, just before we move on from Brighton, would you take Graham Potter at Liverpool in two years, depending on how he progresses over the next over that time? Would he be on your list?
2: Uh, I've said before. I think that whoever takes over, if you're looking for Liverpool to carry on doing the same things that we've been done the last few years, you need someone who has already done that you know if, if we take a, a potter for example first of all there'd be an uprising because understandably there wouldn't be too much difference between what they've achieved at premier league level between him and gerard and there is a certain section of fan base obviously who are insistent it has to be steven gerard out of the two given the resources they have available to them there's more chance of gerard achieving anything than than potter right at this moment in time with brighton that doesn't really detail that one is a better coach or manager than the other one to be perfectly honest that's that's a matter of resources and mm. club ambition and all the rest of it um i i don't think that graham potter or Stephen Gerrard should really be in the conversation again like i said as long as you're expecting that liverpool are going to have to carry on doing what we've been doing if you want a challenge for the top honors i think the management right at this moment in time has got to be the number one um consideration in terms of how good they are, how experienced they are, what their expectations are. I mean, look at PSG last night just going out to Real Madrid. That shows you that no matter what manager you have, you've got to have the right setup around them. But look at Manchester United. They've had the setup previously, not not so much now because they're looking at changing all the rest of it, but they got the manager wrong so many times. You, we already have the setup. We know that we've got the setup really, really good. Everything is there in terms of support, in terms of the trust and the backing and the uh, financial capabilities to uh, change staff members or bring in new areas of development and all the rest of it. But you have to have that central person who is really, really good at coaching and management and all the rest of it. A very, very good decision maker. And I think that whoever replaces Klopp in the end has to be of a very, very similar standard to him.
1: I would argue that what Potter has done at Brighton is more impressive than what Gerrard has done because Gerrard has been at two clubs where he's had substantial resources. At Rangers, he spent more than anyone else in the league combined than everyone else in the league combined. And his wage bill was higher than everybody bar Celtic combined. Uh, He won one trophy there, admittedly a league title unbeaten, but that's all he won. Brendan Rodgers did that up there. Uh, And at Villa, he's walked into a situation where he's been able to go out and bring in Coutinho and Dina and took over a squad that had spent well over £200 Whereas with Potter, he is working with one of the smaller budgets in the squad and keeping a club in the Premier League is more impressive than just being mid-table with a team that should be mid-table. But yeah, I agree as well. I think if Potter goes to Leicester this summer, which has been rumoured, and does really well, then maybe he puts himself in the conversation, but I I doubt he's there. Let's quickly hit Liverpool, but before we do, breaking news. A three-spokesman has said, in light of the government's recently announced sanctions, we have requested that Chelsea Football Club temporarily suspend our our sponsorship of the club, including the removal of our brand – from shirts and around the stadium until further notice so maybe tonight three will be on the shirts but as of the weekend it will not on to Liverpool Roberto Firmino and Ibu Kanate, both with knocks but both expected to be ready to go this weekend so with that in mind would your Liverpool team look any different from the following Alisson Trent Matip Virgil Robertson Jones for Jones, Jones Henderson, Thiago, Diaz left, Salah right, Manny through the middle. Um,
2: probably not. Um, no, I'd be okay with that. I mean, we've got a few recovery days before the Arsenal game as well, which should be fine. Incidentally, Van Dyke and I think Thiago weren't in training today, but I think that would probably just be extra recovery day for them rather than any injury issue. Same with Canate, still not there. Um, I think that would probably be my 11, to be fair. I mean, there's was, there was a good case for Henderson coming back in instead of Curtis Jones, for example, for this one. I think it was...
1: That's why I have him in the six, because I think this is more a game for Henderson in the six.
2: Okay. Um, I don't think that there's too much worry over whatever the side is right now, to be perfectly honest, simply because with nearly everybody fit, the bench can be as strong as you want it to be, and there's plenty of scope to, to make alterations in match if we need to. I mean, you'd like to think, obviously, that whoever starts, then the tempo is good and we... We play to our capabilities and we therefore should be better than whoever we're playing. It doesn't always work like that in football, but that's where you have subs. And again, a good coach, good in good game decisions and all the rest of it. So I'm not as worried over the start and 11 in this game as I would be for many, many others simply because of the range of options that we'll have to change it in match. I hmm. do hope that Curtis Jones is in the squad because of late it's been either he's in the 11 or he's not in the 20 at all. At oh, all, uh, yeah. So I, I I do think his his last couple of performances when he's when he started have been pretty good to be fair, and I think that he he deserves to be at least in the squad. Um, but then again, I suppose Kate has played well as well for a few of them. So it's it's tricky. It's nice to have that balance rather than, as I said a couple of podcasts ago, which under eighteen should we put in the squad this week? Who has not really played any senior minutes mm. of football whatsoever? Um, which championship would...
1: centre back is lining up for us this <laughs> yeah. weekend?
2: Yeah, I'd expect Bobby Firmino to be in the squad as well this time. Uh, Didn't quite make it, obviously, for the inter-game, but maybe this is one where he gets his first few minutes back off the bench.
1: Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, I I agree. I don't think the eleven is of the utmost importance. I think any eleven that we put out should be enough to beat Brighton, given our form, given their form, given the quality we have versus the quality they have. So we'll wrap up with this. Give me your prediction. It's away from home.
2: But I'm going, and I'm not going to have any of this nonsense about I, I make us lose when I go to the matches. That's been thoroughly disproven to all scientific high standards. Uh, 3-1 to Liverpool.
1: That's okay. That's okay. As long as Tandon is not in the building, I'm confident that we'll win. So, gags, stay your ass away from Brighton this weekend. Uh, I will also go for a Reds win. I will say 2-1. A little bit tighter than yours, but I think we'll win the game. And I think it should be a relatively decent game to watch as well coming up on Saturday. It is, of course, an unusual one for us to be playing an early kickoff that far away from home. But, you know, the powers that be are the powers that be. Uh, have you got anything coming out this week that you want people to read?
2: I will have the usual European piece. I've got... a. Uh piece that went out on Real Madrid, a chat with the Celta Viga president on CBC agreements, having a nice go at Real and Barcelona for not agreeing with it, how they're going to make the most of that uh, income to try and catch up with those teams a little bit further ahead and a few other bits and pieces. He was quite a good guy to speak to and what else have we got? I think there'll probably be a Liverpool piece before the weekend but I'm not 100% sure to be perfectly honest. At this moment in time, the only thing I'm, I'm quite happy about is that Liverpool don't have to spend a certain amount of money to get down to Brighton.
1: Yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Uh, Right, we will leave it there. Unsanctioned. As always, the Reds to win this weekend. Take care of yourselves. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show.